Good morning. Good to see you all on this cold day. We went from like 90 to 30. <laughs> I talked to my dad last night. It was his birthday. He just got 18 inches of snow in Michigan, and they were going out somewhere. And I was like, really? We would be not going out anywhere. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm so happy to be here with you today. So glad to continue our study on Genesis. But I bet you had a lot of the same questions I had. What happened to Noah? Why did he get drunk? And why did Ham get in so much trouble? And why did Canaan get blamed for it? So hopefully we'll gain a little bit of understanding about those things. Meanwhile, there's a couple things I found that will shed some more light on Noah and the ark. We're going to look at them on the screen. This is the first one. This was a letter written to Noah. Dear Noah, we could have sworn you said the ark wasn't leaving until five. Yours sincerely, the unicorns. So now we know what happened to them. Okay, here's another one I found. It's a couple of um, monkeys walking on the ark. A 40-day cruise, just the two of us without the kids. Oh, Harold, this will be the best vacation ever. I hope it doesn't rain. <laughs> this week I am thanking God for new beginnings do you ever get discouraged about your sins and just think that's it God's done with me I'm a horrible person I can't face the day I'm disqualified I'm not going to be used by God anymore I feel that way hey the good thing is we're in good company Paul felt that way Look on your verse sheet, Romans 7. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I didn't put in the next line because here's the amazing truth the next thing paul says is but thanks be to god through christ that's our answer we serve a loving god so every morning i can look back at yesterday and think about my sins and i can go to god and confess and start anew and I can remember my failures and my disappointments. And I can go to God and find new hope and new strength. And when I miss the mark spiritually or I choose something poorly or I lack wisdom, I can go to my God and find that there is a new beginning every single day without exception. It's a new day to follow God and be blessed because our God is a God of compassion and mercy and patience and forgiveness. He is the God of new beginnings. And we just sang about that, and it's on your outline on the top under the title. We just sang this song, The Steadfast Love of the Lord Never Ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Because of his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. My sins, my failures, my hurts have no power over the vast love of God. 
God's love is greater. And love was his motivation when he told Noah to build an ark. He had our redemption in mind because he loves us. And so he preserved mankind and provided a way for us to know him. When we belong to Christ, we wake up every morning and we are in the ark. We are in the ark of Jesus Christ who has lifted us up from the sins of our past and the sins from the hour before to go forward in life blessed with him at our side. He continues also to faithfully intercede for us to bring us victory over the sins and hurts that could overwhelm us. Look at Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, because God is the God of new beginnings. And you saw that illustrated in chapter 9 this week when you studied it. It was well illustrated. The moment that Noah and his family set their feet on the dry land outside the ark, this was the land that only a year earlier had been occupied by the immoral, the violent, the wicked. This was where all mankind had rebelled against their creator and his righteous ways. And I don't think you and I can even imagine how corrupt the world was. I think we can get a feel for it a little bit. In chapter 6, there was a verse that had a lot of absolutes in it. The Lord saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's hearts was only evil, continually Those are some pretty strong, absolute words. I don't know if you saw the movie Noah. I hope you weren't thinking you were going to learn about the flood. (laughs) We saw it early, so I had high hopes. You wouldn't have found many theological truths there. For instance, there was no stowaway on the ark who was eating the animals to stay alive in the ark, in case you saw that. One thing they did do well in that movie was show the great depravity of man at that time. They had people throwing people into human pits just to be used and abused and killed. They trampled over each other and killed people. Uh, They were selfish. And and all along the way, they were destroying God's creation as as a visible illustration of how they were also destroying and abusing each other. So it was a very awful thing to look at they lived as if they had no god it was man ruling man with moral abandonment and only noah and his family had a relationship with their creator and so god used them and blessed them to bring new hope new beginnings back into god's creative world do you guys remember the disney song a whole new world wasn't that a disney song now i think noah wrote it I think they got it from Noah. When they walked away from the ark, they found themselves in a whole new world. Think about it. Think of the the world I just described that they left. Think about them stepping into this whole new world that was in front of them. The sights and the sounds and the smells of the violent world they left behind were gone. It was beautiful. I think it was unlike anything they had ever seen. 
They're standing in God's beautiful creation. They are experiencing the beauty of God's original plan for mankind. What a great moment for them. It was a new world. And Noah was the new Adam. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? God blessed Noah and his sons as he did Adam and Eve. As the second Adam, Noah was blessed as God's image bearer and given the same commandments that God had given Adam and Eve. So the blessing of God on the family of Noah was going to provide a new beginning for humankind. And like Adam and Eve, they were to be fruitful and fill the earth. And you notice that God was using the very same words with Noah to renew the earth that he used with Adam to begin to put human life on the earth. I thought it was fun to read the theologian John Calvin. He believed that maybe at this point in the story, Noah and his family felt insecure and maybe a little bit frightened about their future, which would make sense. And so as God spoke this blessing in verse 1, he wasn't only telling them, okay, the favor of fruitfulness is going to be restored in you. He was also encouraging them by stating his purposes for them. That their offspring, would bring, their offspring would bring about the renewal of the world. And so if these four men and their wives had any fears about why they had been delivered, God laid before them a purpose and a plan. And what a privilege it was. When this was explained to them, God was also directing them into a renewed view of marriage and its original purpose. A man and a woman and children under God, serving God, restoring and renewing the earth. I think what marriage was really supposed to be had gotten lost because of the depraved society that they had left behind. And so now God's original plan is reinstated as well. All people on earth would descend from Noah's family as they demonstrated God's original design for marriage. And by saving Noah and his family, God gave humanity a second chance and a fresh start. And this new populating of the earth by Noah would mean now that society would also be able to have an understanding of the very earliest human history. They would know the creation story and the flood story because only Noah's family lived pre-flood and post-flood. And guess how old Noah lived to be? 950. He had a lot of years to tell the story. And that's what he did. 350 years after the flood, he was telling his kids and his great-grandkids and his great-great-grandkids, and et cetera, et cetera, the story of the world's beginning and what happened after the flood. The new beginning. I just thought it would have been so cool to be like his great, 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 great granddaughter sitting on Noah's lap and him beginning to talk about the flood and how evil and wicked the world was and how things, the water started dripping from heaven and they built this giant ark and then lightning and thunder and they were lifted up above it and came into this place that God had restored for them. And for you and I, how God planned to continue blessing his creation. 
And I think that much of this new world looked and functioned the same as the original world. The promises God gave to Adam, he's now reinstating for Noah, the new Adam. We're going to see that in the next verses. He's telling Noah, I'm going to be your provider. You're going to have dominion on the earth. He gives them a blessing. He also gives them a warning about disobedience, just as he had Adam and Eve. But there's a few new things. So let's look. Verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. So we know in the time of Adam and Eve, they ate plants for food. Now Noah's family can eat meat for food. And what does that do to the animals? They become fearful of man. So there's a new kind of a um, dynamic in the animal world. So now they're fearful. Man has dominion. And man can eat them if they want. So animals now feared man's dominion and are pronounced available to be food for man. Uh, I, I mention every now and then J. Vernon McGee. He's with the Lord now, but he, used to, he was a preacher and he had a radio show and he's written some books and he was so funny to listen to and loved, loved God. And he tells this funny story about a time he told a woman that all the generations before the flood were vegetarians. And she got really excited because she was a vegetarian and she thought everybody should be vegetarians and this proved her point. But see, J. Vernon McGee liked to eat meat. And so he said, I wouldn't make too much of it if I were you because it was a bunch of vegetarians that got destroyed in the flood. (laughs) If diet had improved them in any way, they wouldn't have been destroyed. (laughs) All those verses remind us that we serve a God of new beginnings, the same God that desired to bless Adam desires to bless Noah. I think Adam can represent those who walk away as he did the original blessing by his disobedience. Noah representing the righteous man who has walked away from the sin that was surrounding him and behind him. And so he was told by God himself, I'm your provider. Go and be fruitful. When we decide to leave our lifestyle of sin behind us and seek God, we personally meet the God of new beginnings. And he tells us the same thing. You're used to getting the world to be your provider. You want people to be your provider. You want money to be your provider. You want fame to be your provider. I'm your provider. And you can be fruitful if you decide to walk with me. I read a story once about... um, Anthony Hopkins' life, the actor that we see in every other movie. And uh, he had a real sad life. He, he says he didn't have one friend growing up. He could not, I don't know if he had a learning disability or what, he could not do school. So his teachers made fun of him, the students made fun of him, and his nickname most of his life was Dumbo. And that's how he went through life. So what do you think he did once he got old enough to be on his own. He realized if I drink, I can forget all that. And I can make it through life. And I can 
be less sad. And so drinking began to take a huge hold on his life. And he says there were times he would wake up, he wouldn't know how he got there. He became, he says at first it was a lot of fun, then it became a miserable life. And he was super desperate. He was in New York for something. And he said, it was like I was demon-possessed. I, I felt such an addiction. It was like it was almost demonic. And he was an atheist at the time. And he was somewhere in a hotel lobby. And he sort of started sharing his life with some woman. And she said, well, you just need to turn your life over to God. You need to trust God. He can heal you with your drinking. Now, this just shocked him because he didn't believe in God. But secondly, he couldn't imagine anyone could really help him. But that's when he turned to God. And he said, immediately, I didn't need to drink anymore. His story is amazing. And he's been sober now for 35 years. So if anybody says to him, do you believe there's a God? He always says, yes. You won't believe what he did for me. See, he went to the God of new beginnings. His life changed. He had a new beginning in him. He didn't need liquor. He needed God. When we walk away from sin, God promises us a new and a fruitful life with him. Romans 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we're going to find this in this world. What else do we find in this new world? Look at verse 4. But, God says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply it. So what we're finding in this new world is there's going to be a new government. We can realize from these verses, first of all, that life was cheap before the flood. There were murders, there were abuses, there were probably torture and torment. But what we can also realize in these verses is that God places a high value on life. And so in this new world, he created a plan for man to keep the stability of life in check. Man would have human law that would guard the moral absolutes of God. This is the birth of government. Look at verse 13 on your verse sheet. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Human law was necessary to uphold the sanctity of life and punish those who abuse life's sacredness. And in these verses we realize humans don't have unlimited power over life just because God does. God alone is the giver of life. Blood represents life and to treat it disrespectfully is to deny that God has lordship over life. 
So God's warning here teaches us to safeguard life, both in how we eat meat and how we preserve human life on earth. First of all, with the eating of meat, an animal must be killed in a humane way that does not prolong suffering if it's going to be eaten. To eat an animal with its blood would mean it's suffering, would mean it would still be alive, would mean it was, it was inhumane. And then he's also saying a human's life must never be taken, period. Why? Because man is made in the image of God. The rampant sin in Noah's day didn't destroy that amazing truth. That's an eternal truth. Man's created in the image of God, and so the murder of man is an affront to God. Unlike animals, we are personal. We are rational. We are thinking moral beings with a body and a soul and a spirit that we may know God and fellowship with him. When we harm each other, we are, in a sense, wounding God himself. I listen sometimes to TED Talks. I don't know if you ever do. It's not TED's Talks. It's TED Talks. And it's online, and it's on the radio, and some are great, and some are horrible. And... uh, There was this woman on recently who was well-meaning and and well-schooled. She'd had this incredible new revelation that everybody was talking about. The audience had accepted it as just truth. And she's realized that we have descended from particular apes in the south of Africa. And even used terms like, so when you see a person walking down the street, you're seeing one of the apes from Africa. And everybody was like, wow. It was really crazy. So what's one of the consequences of having that kind of evolutionary belief? If that's true, if we are animals, then we can act like animals. We can kill people with little remorse because basically they were once an ape in Africa. It takes away and diminishes the value of human life. The killing of someone else uh, loses its true impact when we believe like that. We are created in the image of God, designed to dwell with God. Therefore, it is no small thing to take the life of someone who is valued so highly by God. So what was God's plan when the life of a man is taken from him? We read in these verses, God establishes here the law of capital punishment. In this new world of Noah, life was required for life. If someone um, brought death to someone, the government would require death of them. This was a punishment. This was also a deterrent against all the kind of violence that had made the flood necessary. This was the kind of violence going on. God has a plan in place to to stop that. Even if the governing authorities fail in this duty, we know this to be true, that someone who takes the life of someone else often loses their life in some other way anyway. This is the justice of God. Look at Psalm 55. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction, the men of blood and treachery. They shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Did you notice how he repeats at the end again, 
Be fruitful and multiply greatly on the earth. And I think, well, that's a strange place to put that again. It's because God has been talking about how life had been taken so much pre-flood that violence and murder were greatly at odds with God's divine plan of multiplying lives. They were reducing lives. God is letting Noah know in this new world, this is a perfect place to remind them, you know, that world, that world of murder and abuse and the shedding of blood, that world that stops my plan of multiplication and frustrates the design I have for life, that world is gone, Noah. Gone. Here's the new way. Be fruitful. Multiply. And I'm going to help you bring about a government to uphold that rule. Um, each of us in this room is a life that God holds as precious. You know, when I moved here from Illinois, I had never heard that word precious used, <laughs> except if you were talking about a diamond or something, or a stone. So when I first got here, yeah, Chicagoans didn't go around saying, you are precious. We just didn't do that. So first when I heard it, I was just shocked how friendly the people in Texas were. And my mom went to get groceries with me once, and she said, why is every person asking me how I am? I said, they want to know. <laughs> That's what people are like here. They're friendly, and they're nice. They want to know. But the first time someone used the word precious talking to me, it, was, it felt intimate, and it felt awkward, and it was embarrassing. But now if someone does that, I just think that is the greatest compliment you could say to me. Because that's what God thinks about me. My life is precious to him. So if we tell someone you are precious, we are blessing them. What a great thing to say to someone else. God blesses us, protects us, directs us, because our life is precious to him. These verses in this passage, they should make our hearts soar to realize I am of great value in the eyes of God. He loves me. I'm precious to him. Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he destroys. When we look at these verses, we're realizing God is fulfilling to Noah a promise he made in chapter 6. Remember the promise, I'm going to bring a flood. Everything on earth will die. I will establish a covenant with you. You and your family shall come to the ark. So I want us to think about this. They stepped off the ark, and they're in this new land. And you know that you were brought out from sin, and the flood came because of rampant sin. And you're on dry ground so when someone begins to do a sinful thing next to you wouldn't you just go wouldn't you carry an umbrella around wouldn't that be scary and the first time it rains wouldn't you be like looking for the ark and running this would be the fear that that they would have I mean I think that if it started to rain you'd get post-traumatic syndrome 
God's so merciful. He wants to take that fear away from Noah's family and also bless us at the same time. Look at verse 8. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and every living creature, the birds, the livestock, the beasts of the earth, as many as came out of the ark, for it's for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature with you for all future generations. That means us. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and the flesh that is on the earth. So this is a covenant that's a gracious provision of protection for all creation. And it carries on for all generation. And even though he includes animals to reap this blessing, only man can really grasp it in faith. And here's what we grasp. God's covenant turns judgment into grace. That's who God is. Every time we see that rainbow arching over the heavens after the rain, we see that vast sign of God's faithfulness because of this word of grace. Made me think, maybe that's where the idea of a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow came from. There is a pot of gold there. We're looking at the grace of God when we look at a rainbow. What a great thing. Never again will mankind need to fear the heavens opening in watery judgment. That's what God's promising. Had there ever been a rainbow before? Probably not. Uh, probably had never rained before. So God uses the changes in the atmosphere and the natural phenomena in the sky that would have followed to bless us and be a reminder and to know his family a reminder that there is a covenant of grace and protection over them. Think how important that would have been for that generation. This was a sign for Noah that God has no pleasure in destruction. This was a sign for Noah that God is not moody. That he doesn't get his feeling hurt and change his mind. This is a sign that weeping is but for a night, joy comes in the morning. This is a sign that no cloud that God sends into our life is permanent. But one day will give place to unclouded grace and joy in our life. Those are the signs of the rainbow. And I love it. We all say we're to look at the rainbow, and that's true and wonderful, but God says, I will look at the bow. That's a, just another assurance. It's not going to be up to you to remember and look, and then I won't come. It's my job. I'm going to look. That's my commitment to you, that I will never judge the earth again with water. I love this. The word bow in this verse is the same word used for a battle bow in war. 
And in verse 13, God says, I have set my bow in the clouds, meaning he has set down his weapon of judgment at that time. When a warrior set down his bow, it meant the battle was over and peace had come. And that is what God is saying here. He's going to continue to judge sin because that's his nature. He has to. He's holy. But he's making a covenant of peace with the survivors. This bow speaks of covenant mercy set upon the storm clouds of judgment that were over creation at that time. We call this common grace. We still live under this order. We wait patiently until all things will be made new. So when we see the rainbow, we can be reminded, I'm going to keep living obediently with this covenant God, knowing one day his divine wrath will permanently give way to eternal peace for all eternity. That's what that means. And here's what it reminds us personally. Since the bow speaks of covenant mercy in the midst of the clouds of judgment, I think we can see the bow in our lives as the cross of Christ. When we are tempted to feel judgment and feel um, that God is not going to use us anymore, that he's dissatisfied with us, we have to remember those clouds of judgment have no power over us once we acknowledge that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And we can realize the cross covered it, the bow that is left in our hearts, Christ's bow, is peace. He has hung his bow of peace in our hearts. We don't have to fear the clouds of judgment anymore. What a great thing. A new beginning awaits us. Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't fear the clouds of judgment because we live under the bow of Christ. Okay, now we have to talk about Noah getting drunk and naked. And I just want to say, say it ain't so, Noah. That's what I want to say. (laughs) In reality, it's good this part of the story is left in here for us. So we can realize sin is just around every corner. To recognize the dangers of drinking excessively. And to realize what also appears to be a very trivial event is a major event in the history of the nations. So look at verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, so some theologians want to give Noah a break in this story. Noah's described as a man of the soil, but had he ever planted a vineyard before? Did he understand the process of fermentation? Did it change because of the flood? Was he surprised by the effects of drinking wine? Was wine even used before that time? Did Noah err in ignorance? Those are some of the questions people throw out there, so I'm throwing them out there to you. I think inquiring minds want to know. 
we can't know for sure. This text simply represents one man who had walked righteously with God, planted a vineyard, got drunk, and then got naked in his tent. What we can know is that this story is presented that this is a disgrace. This was a disgraceful thing in Noah's life. So when Moses tells this story, he's really upholding the virtues of self-control and modesty and honoring our parents. Ham sees his father, runs and tells his brothers, and when we just read it like that, we think, big deal. Not a big deal. So we have to think a little harder about what's going on here with him. He looked, and then he didn't look away. And then he told and exposed what his father had done. And he didn't care that his father was naked and exposed. And he probably was ridiculing him and triumphing over him. Ham displayed his wicked bent by uncovering the nakedness, by not covering the nakedness of his father. We learn about Ham's heart. So we're left with the impression he's mocking his father's condition, taking pleasure in it. And here he is, Noah, the minister of salvation to men, the chief restorer of the new world at a very old age, lying intoxicated in his tent, and Ham in the tent as one of the eight sacred seeds selected by God to fill the earth, and here he is displaying an unrestrained irreverence for this special man of God and an unrestrained irreverence for his special calling from God. Happening right there in the tent of Noah. Strangely, at this point in the story... We realize Moses wants to connect Ham with his youngest son, Canaan. He describes Ham here as the father of Canaan. And remember, Moses is penning this story years later as Israel is standing on the borders of the land of where? Canaan. He wants to make sure I am going to give you some insight into what kind of people live in that land. And so he lets them know this story, and he lets them know Canaan is a descendant of Ham, who this happened to. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Shem and Japheth are probably shocked with Ham's levity about their father's condition. I read this one great quote. Listen to this. Such a base mind existing in Ham, a prince in the new world, and the state of Noah, the holy patriarch, could not less astonish the brothers than if they had seen the ark itself broken, dashed in pieces, and destroyed. I think their hearts were broken. So they do everything they can, Shem and Japheth, not to look at their father. They put a garment on their shoulders and they walk backwards and they drop it on their dad. They're so honoring. They're so distraught. They're so broken up about this situation. They want to cherish the reverence they owe Noah. And that's the difference between them and their brother Ham. Look at verse 24. 
When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, because of this incident, Noah's going to prophesy about his son's descendants. His words would have no power by themselves. He's not just angry and saying, well, may this happen to you and this. This is an oracle from God. This is a prophecy from God. It would not happen unless it happened according to God's will. So Noah's oracle was a prophetic announcement concerning the future nations these new nations. And first we realize the story places violation on Ham, but curse on Canaan, and we have to ask why. A few different options, maybe because Noah had already anticipated in Canaan the evil traits that marked his father Ham. The curse would then be a prophecy of his immoral conduct, and it would be a fitting punishment. Maybe because Ham's sin called for a particular justice, He had made an irreparable breach in his family. A curse must be put on his son's family so the severity of it would be apparent. Or some theologians think that maybe Canaan had a part to play in this, and it's just not recorded here for us. What is important to know is that the attitude that led to the deed of Ham would lead to full fruition in the nation of the Canaanites. Israel's enemy. They were not cursed because of what a ham did. They were cursed because they acted like ham. They acted like their ancestor. In fact, if you look in Leviticus, you'll see these two words used often to describe the Canaanites. Nakedness and uncovering. Nakedness and uncovering. And it meant the loose immorality and the enslavement to sexuality that the Canaanites had. Any Israelite who knew the culture of the Canaanites would read the story of Ham and make the connection. To them, the Canaanites were the natural embodiment of Ham. Moral abandonment was fully developed in the Canaanites. And he says they're going to be slaves. In chapter 14 of Genesis, we'd see that they were enslaved by eastern kings. Later, under Joshua, they became woodchoppers and water carriers for Israel. But in God's plan, in order for blessing to come to the descendants of Shem, the Canaanites would have to be disposed from their land because we realize Shem became the nation of Abraham. Shem became the nation of Israel. And the Canaanites lived in the land that God was promising Shem's descendants. And did you notice when he speaks about the future, when Noah speaks about Shem's future, look back down at that. He's actually praising God right there. He's worshiping. Blessed be the Lord. Because Shem had that special calling. And he says, blessed be the Lord. Jehovah is used there. The God of Shem. The father of a nation set apart to glorify God. And from this nation, all nations would be blessed with a Savior, Redeemer, named Jesus Christ. 
So later, as Israel did stand on the banks of the Jordan River and they're looking at the Canaanites and they look scary to them and they don't want to go in there and they don't want to do what God's told them to do. And then Moses could remind them of this story and they could be encouraged. Oh, yes, the Canaanites, they're wicked and evil and they don't know God and they're supposed to serve us. And they could remember and find courage. What about the descendants of Japheth? They would also have temporal possessions, but more importantly, they would share spiritual blessings. These Gentile nations would have the opportunity to gather around God's people Israel throughout history and stand under their tent, the tent that carried the blessings and the mercies of God. They would get to reap the spiritual blessings that surrounded the nation Israel. This is an amazing prophecy from Noah. Amazing. The calling of Gentiles under God's tent is not only decreed by God's eternal plans, but was declared early on in the renewal of earth by the lips of Noah himself that this would be true. He's talking about us. This is the new beginnings. God has a plan for everyone who is lost and can be found. And it's called the bride in the body of Christ. Jew, Gentile, male, female, under the tent, called the church of God. Look at Titus 2. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. As part of God's church, we have the blessing of continually dwelling under the mercies and the compassion and the goodness of this God, this God of new beginnings. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise today. We give you praise for who you are, for your heart of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And we bow down before you, acknowledging what a mercy that is in our lives. Encourage us and remind us as we leave here that you are the God of new beginnings. You have plans for us. You love us. And you are constantly at work in our hearts. And we thank you and pray this in Christ's name.